The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Exploring our oneness with spirit and each other. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here's your host, Victoria Moran. When veganism was codified back in the 1940s in England, it was all about one thing, ending suffering and saving lives of non-human animals. But shortly thereafter, two things happened. Most of those early vegans saw that they had incredible health benefits from this change in the diet, and a few found that they were getting very sick because they didn't have vitamin B12, something that wasn't known a lot then. But once we knew that this was a great way to improve health, and also that we needed to be watching out for certainly B12, health became another pillar in the vegan universe. A few years later, when scientists and lay people started to see that we were responsible for the health of this planet and that animal agriculture adversely affected the environment and the food source for hungry people, veganism got another leg of its stool. And everybody knows that the most stable stool is the one with three legs. So for the animals and the earth, And our arteries, welcome to the Main Street Vegan Program. 
I'm your host, Victoria Moran, and it is my pleasure today to be getting into a couple of fascinating areas that interest vegans. After the break, we'll be talking with Tobias Leonert. He is the author of How to Create a Vegan World, and he is a pragmatist. So if you consider yourself one of those, you'll find him particularly of interest. And right now, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Audrey Sanchez. She is a former decade-long educator and the current executive director of Balanced, a public health advocacy nonprofit fighting for healthier foods in schools, offices, universities, and hospitals. She lives in Kansas City with her husband, her preschool, and three rescued companion animals. Welcome, Audrey. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, it is a pleasure to have you and to hear what you are about. I met you at the Animal Rights Conference in D.C. in 2017, And I was utterly thrilled to find out what you're doing because the hardest place, it seems, for people to maintain a healthy diet and certainly to be vegan is in institutions. So tell us the inspiration behind Balanced. Absolutely. Yes, I I couldn't agree more. So the inspiration behind Balanced is... um is is a couplefold actually. One is echoing what you just said, realizing how difficult it is for people when they are outside of their homes, particularly in places where they have limited choice and menus are designed by food service companies or those institutions, how difficult it is for those folks to um, access food that keeps them healthy and keeps them well um, is the primary inspiration behind this. Um, and the second is Really taking this health messaging that we know is effective and important to people and taking it beyond individual education, you know, going person to person saying this is important, you should do this and holding companies and and food um, institutions accountable for the changes that we know will improve the lives of people. So what are your goals? What are your priorities? Absolutely. So our main goals are to get food service providers primarily. So the large companies that design menus, source food, do culinary um, uh, preparation and service in all the places you mentioned, schools, hospitals, universities, to um, shift at least 20% of the food that they serve from the unhealthy meat, egg, and dairy products that are currently on their menus to the more evidence-backed, nutritious, and healthful fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, and other plant proteins. Fabulous. And what kind of response are you getting? Um, (laughs) From the public, the response is overwhelmingly positive. Um, Food service providers themselves will admit that when they they take surveys of their guests and their customers, anywhere between 60 and 75% of their customers want these changes to happen. Um, And so the public and individuals are overwhelmingly supportive. Our um, outreach and advocacy toward or to or against food service providers has um, not been as well received from them as we would like. Uh, as as anticipated, this is a big change that we're asking of them. Um, it's asking them not only to make some technical changes, like adjust their menu, but be really adaptive and responsive to, to what people need. And that means changing the way they think about food service and prioritizing people's health over their profits. 
Well, that was going to be my next question. Is the argument you get profit-based? Obviously, it's more expensive to provide real food than phony food. Or is it more philosophical, simply that not everybody yet believes that this is the way to go? I would say it's a combination of of both. Um, Although I would argue that there are some um, profit-driven arguments for plant-based alternatives to the unhealthy meat and eggs that are currently being served. Um, Pound for pound, plant proteins are cheaper than um, animal proteins. Um, But philosophically, there is a lot of scapegoating to the the consumer. This is what children want. This is what our consumers want. This is, um, you know, we just we just give people what they want is the argument that we hear most often. Um, Despite the fact that even their own in-house evidence suggests people want healthier food to be served to them. Well, I know that a lot of the food that's available in a lot of of places, grocery stores, restaurants, is not maybe what some of us would want who, who tend to really want good food. And yet in my limited experience of seeing what people are fed in hospitals, in nursing homes, it seems to be a step down from even what you could get at the 7-Eleven on the corner. I was visiting somebody at a hospital a few years ago, and she asked if I would go into the little room where they kept some food for the patients and, and get her a little cup of applesauce. And I read the ingredients knowing that applesauce from the grocery store would be apples, water, sugar, or just apples and water if it was unsweetened. Mm-hmm. This, this was all kinds of weird purees <laughs> and pectins and odd things. I'm not sure it said apple. <laughs> it probably did somewhere. And I was thinking, why Why do we have to get even worse than the sad standard American diet when people need healthy food the most? Isn't that devastating? Yes, exactly what you're mentioning. The, the places that we're targeting for change are the places where people are um, have the least opportunity to choose the food that they want to eat and are typically most vulnerable. So schools, hospitals, nursing homes, those are places where nutrition should be the gold standard. It is um, a fundamental belief at Balance that it is abhorrent for food companies to not make health their number one priority given the um, undeniable body of research that says food is the primary pathway to good health and to living well. Um, and so, you know, I think it strengthens our argument at balance that ulterior motives are at play when they design menus, but it's really difficult to convince people who don't necessarily take nutrition as to heart as much as folks like myself, you, and others in this community do. Well, just so that everybody understands, it was actually fairly recently that that I was taught that you don't go to the hospital and say, give us better food because they are dependent on these these other companies that that are behind the hospital, the school, the nursing home. Can you let us know what that industry is and who these folks are? 
Absolutely. So the companies that make these decisions are called food service providers. And it's essentially a third party company that schools or hospitals, other institutions contract with in order to get food into their institutions. Um, they do this rightfully so. I would expect teachers to be the experts in education. And I would expect my anesthesiologist to know about medicine. I would not expect them to know how to um, serve, you know, 500 students three times a day, for example. Um, and so these companies are, are major food service companies like Aramark, Compass, Sodexo, companies that serve anywhere between two and nine billion, that's billion with a B, meals a year in the United States. Um, and so they are supposed to be the experts at designing menus, uh, preparing the food and serving their customers in these places that uh, contract with them. So I think we all see the big trucks, but yes. <laughs> until you told us what it was all about, maybe we didn't all know what uh, what they were doing. So you mentioned Aramark, and I know that you have a campaign um, trying to get them to make some changes. Tell us about that. We do. So the first campaign that we launched as an organization, and just for some context, we are only about eight months old. Uh, we started last March, um, and in the last eight months have really targeted a few major food service companies to begin doing some corporate outreach and campaign work with. Um, our first outreach was to Aramark. Uh, we asked them to make this change, shift 20% of their unhealthy foods to being um, the healthier alternatives that I've mentioned before. Um, we were met with near radio silence um, and as such launched a high pressure public awareness campaign we really believe their customers or contracts, anybody who is patronizing Aramark has a right to know that um, health is not the main priority for them. And so we have been um, on an education slash advocacy crusade to um, encourage Aramark to make this change. In the time since we've you know, reached out, launched this campaign, they have committed to doing some culinary training with HSUS. So they'll be training a couple thousand of their chefs in plant-based menu design and, and some culinary training, which we believe is, is a good first step. And certainly That's a progress. great step. Huge. Definitely a move in the right direction. But we are still eager to get them to make a, a firm commitment. Um, because as you and others know, when you have a goal and you put it out there, you make a commitment, you're more inclined to, to act in accordance with with that commitment. Right. So what about the individual? What if uh, one of us runs into an unfortunate accident and winds up in, in a hospital or a physical rehab center or something of that nature? Is there anything we can do to get better food? Yeah, that's a great question. I, um, I very recently actually found myself in this position. I decided to go rollerblading. Um, <laughs> That'll well, do it. <laughs> fell, not even doing anything very cool, just very slowly rollerblading, fell, broke my arm, ended up having to have a plate and eight screws put in, um, and had to advocate for healthy food in the hospital. It still was uh, um, grossly... Um, I don't want to say incompetent. That's not the right word. It was a dry salad with some jello on the side, which certainly for all of the reasons we know are, is not uh, healthy food. 
So you can continue to advocate on an individual level at whatever hospital or institution you're in, whether it's your child's school or your workplace. Um, but if you, if folks would like to get involved in making big systemic change, there are ways that they can get involved with Balanced, which would be signing up for our Balanced Plate Alliance on our website or following us on social media, because we're really putting pressure on the institutions to change uh, across the country. So hopefully within the next two years, what we'll, what we'll see is it's no longer the responsibility of every single individual to advocate for their needs, because we know this isn't an individual problem. This is a, a, a systemic change that has to happen for everyone. Well, how exciting that that you have seen this and that you saw the issue even before you broke your arm <laughs> and that Balanced is out there uh, doing this this good work and you're so fresh and new. Very exciting. The website is balanced.org. Uh, they're Get Balanced Now on Facebook, Get Balanced underscore now on Twitter. And we will put all the URLs for Audrey Sanchez and uh, Balanced on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. Thank you so very much, Audrey. And uh, maybe the next time we visit a hospital, we'll just find ourselves some kale. I... I really hope so. And if if it's up to me, that will happen much sooner rather than later. I have a feeling you're going to make it happen sooner. <laughs> you know, it is funny about the kale. Listen, we're talking years and, and years ago. Um, my husband at the time was working in hospitals and they mm-hmm. used this pretty curly green stuff on the salad bar around the edges of the yep fruit cocktail and the jello and the other stuff. And I thought, well, isn't that a pretty green? Well, of course, we now know that it is kale, which will save the world. But at that <laughs> time, it was a decoration. So we have made strides. And with uh, the work of people like you, we're going to make lots more. Thank you so very much. Thanks for being on our program today. And everybody else, stay with us. We're going to be talking about creating a vegan world. If Unity Online Radio has helped you grow spiritually through programs like this one, please consider supporting this online radio programming. Visit www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. Thank you for helping us continue to serve as the voice of an awakening world. Be sure to grab the latest issue of Unity Magazine and read the interview with Ram Das, the iconic spiritual leader of the 60s. He's now focused on how to age consciously. Spiritual author Thomas Moore reflects on grumpy old men and women. And Barbara Bowen writes a touching story about her experience as a caregiver to her mother with dementia. To subscribe to Unity Magazine, go to unity.org and click on Publications. What if you could start each day with a positive outlook, remembering you are a divine expression of God? Daily Word is a booklet of daily devotionals offering positivity that's downright contagious. With a print subscription or by email, you can pause to reflect on how to practice spirituality in your human experience. 
Reading Daily Word takes about a minute a day, so you can feel uplifted every morning. Visit dailyword.com to subscribe. Did you know you can reach Unity's 24-7 prayer ministry online? You don't even have to give your name to know the prayers have begun for you or those you love. Someone has been praying around the clock at Silent Unity since 1890, and every request is taken into prayer for 30 days. Why not let us pray with you, too? To submit your prayer request to Silent Unity online, go to unity.org and click on prayer, or call 1-800-NOW-PRAY. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back to the program, everybody. Guess what today is? It's my 20th wedding anniversary. And for anybody who is married to somebody who is not a vegan, I just have to tell you that when I met my husband 21 years ago, he ate whatever (laughs) was available. But after being around me for just a few weeks, he went vegetarian. A few years after that, he went vegan. And now he's a super vegan. Not because I pushed, just because I was. You know what? There is an amazing kind of attraction when we're nice and stick to our guns and do what we believe in. So that certainly led to a lot of happily ever aftering over at our house. And today we're celebrating number 20. So that's a happy maker. Also, for anybody who is in the UK, if you're going to be coming to the VegFest in London the weekend of October 21 and 22, come to see me. I'm going to be speaking both days. And also on October 24th, which is a Tuesday, I'll be doing an author event in London at Watkins Books. So uh, please check that out. You can just Google Watkins Books and Victoria Moran and I'll show up. And right now, oh my goodness, I'm so excited to be introducing you to someone whose book I just inhaled. This is How to Create a Vegan World, a Pragmatic Approach by Tobias Leonert, who is our guest. Just to tell you that the foreword is by Peter Singer will give you some idea of the quality of the book. 
Tobias blogs at veganstrategist.org, speaks all over the world for the Center for Effective Vegan Advocacy, which he runs with Melanie Joy, and he's co-founder of ProVeg International. Welcome, Tobias Leonert. Hi, Victoria, and uh, congratulations on your anniversary. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I literally read your book in three days, three nights. I would stay up later than I should have just because I wanted to get another chapter in. You have some absolutely fascinating concepts about getting people to this lovely imaginary place that you call Veganville. Where's Veganville? Well, Veganville is a metaphorical village on the top of a mountain, and uh, it's the village where we want everybody to live, basically, or at least vegans want that. And it's on the top of the mountain because it's um, it's not easy to get there, or at least it's not like you don't get there by yourself. You need to invest a certain kind of effort. And the book is, is well, it's arranged according to the metaphor of the trek to Veganville. So everything, every chapter is like part of a trek to Veganville. So why is that difficult? You know, it seems like there are so many wonderful vegan foods all over. It's so easy. We're seeing more and more companies going fur-free and cruelty-free. Is it still really a trek? Well, I would say it is for most people, and um, I think it's getting easier every day, every year. That's for sure. But um, for most people, it's still quite challenging. And most people that you talk to still have the idea of like, what the hell do you eat and, and, and how can you do that? And it's certainly not the default option at all. So people need to make a certain effort. And I think what we need to do, one of our biggest challenges to make it as easy as possible, to make it as easy as possible to start a trek and to make it as easy as possible for people to put their, let's say, natural compassion and their natural empathy into practice and to actually stop eating animal products. So you use the term pragmatic advocacy. What is that? Yeah, um, so pragmatism means that you are going to well, work according to what you have, according to what works, according to reality, rather, rather than by a set of rules or a dream or an ideal. And of course, we are all idealists in a sense, but I, I um, oppose um, or I contrast uh, pragmatism to idealism. Pragmatism means that you're going to do what works. And I suggest in the book a couple of ways we can be pragmatic. The first one is that we don't have to talk about moral arguments all the time and not about the animals all the time. We can also talk about health and the environment, etc. The second one is that we um, don't have to say only go vegan, but we can also use the complementary uh, reduce message, so a reducitarian message, because I think what will create the fastest tipping point is, is if we have a big group of reducers. A big group of reducers is what drives the market and what changes supply and demand. And then a third way to be pragmatic is to focus on the environment, the environment in the sense of um, the world around us. So if we can create a facilitating environment, an environment that facilitates change on the vegan spectrum, so by, for instance, creating more alternatives and restaurants, etc., all these things, uh, we will make it easier for people to be compassionate. And a uh, final part of being pragmatic, and this is maybe the most controversial part, is that I uh, suggest that we relax the definition of veganism a little bit, and we consider that uh, people who are 99% vegan, they can, or 89, 98%, they can also call themselves vegan, and we don't have to, like, be difficult about that, and I think it's, it will be a much more attractive lifestyle if it's not like a 
black or white, all or nothing thing. And if people know that they 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 can make a slip just uh, once in once in a while, once a year or whatever, and they can still be part of the club, I think that would be a much more attractive club. Now, have you noticed that some people may not agree with you? Oh, definitely. Yes. Um, I mean, <laughs> most of the most of the criticism I get, or most of the feedback rather I get, is is very positive. Also about the book. Uh, but there are people who have a problem with this uh, and, and who think that this is uh, watering down veganism and changing the definition, etc. And well, my response to that is we have to be um, we have to look at what works, basically. And we uh, um, we can't just keep going back to a definition that is like 60 years old. And uh, and it's like going back to Holy Scripture, basically. So I'm, I'm, I'm very much in favor of um keeping questioning things and, and keeping an open mind about everything so that we can do whatever helps the most animals. Well, I know that you want to help the most animals and the people who disagree with you want to help the most animals. Mm -hmm. So we were yes. together on that. So since I really agree with you, for the most part, I, I wasn't aware of the part about relaxing the concept of veganism. That's interesting. Well, I'm just yeah, going to kind of sit with that one. <laughs> Relaxing just just a tiny little bit. I mean, I'm not saying like somebody who eats even even once a month something uh, like 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 a piece of meat or something should call themselves vegan or vegetarian. Not at all. Uh, I mean, one of the examples I give is like you. I mean, if if somebody. Uh, has like a cookie with their, that their grandmother baked and they and they know there's egg in it, but they they want to eat it because they don't want to disappoint their grandmother, and they do that just like whenever they visit their grandmother. I, I don't. I'm not going to call these people out for not not being vegan. That's that's about what I mean. You know, that's a yes. very interesting example because I, I was brought into veganism by Jay Dinshaw, the co-founder of the American Vegan Society. He and Dick Gregory were, were my guides and mentors, and nobody could ever say that they were not hardline because they were. But Jay would always say that the real meaning of veganism is to do the most good and the least harm in any given situation. And if the most good in that particular situation is making your grandmother feel better, especially if she went out of her way to get cage-free eggs, which she thought vegans could eat, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe that is, and, and maybe it's individual. What is mm -hmm. most good, least harm in this particular situation but then on the other side, and I'm going to speak now for, for the idealistic side, you just start letting people make their own rules, and all of a sudden, you're left with nothing. What do you say? Well, I'm, I'm not afraid of that. Um, and um, for the record, I, I wouldn't do that either. In most cases, I'm just saying that we should appreciate it when people say that they do that and not blame them for it. That's, that's what I mean. But um, in terms of like changing the rules, um, I mean, I can still make quite clear what I eat and what I don't eat. And um, suppose that I would um, see myself forced to eat something I don't want to eat. And that would be a tiny detail because I can't go further than that. I'm disgusted with anything more than than like a tiny micro ingredient. But um, suppose that I, I cross that line and um, because of the because of the evening and because of the guest, because of the host, etc. Then I would um, I would just tell him afterward, like, look, um, I made this exception, and maybe when I come again next time, can you make sure that you don't use this because normally I don't eat it. And um, just to be clear, this is not in my case. It's not main, or I suggest, is not mainly because 
of not offending the grandmother or your host or whoever, but mainly because I think it is really important that we uh, create a good image of veganism. And we want people to see it as something feasible and something attractive. And if we are very, very rigid about it and people say like, oh my God, if, if I'm vegan, then I'm going to get into these awkward situations and, and this is really not possible, then what have we won? I mean, we have, okay, we have avoided that tiny bit of, of micro-ingredient, but we have um, maybe alienated somebody from veganism further still. And I don't think that's a win for anybody. And that may well be true. That's certainly the way that I am seeing it these days. But I'm going to speak for the idealists again, since they're not here. If you equate health vegans and environmental vegans, the few of those that there are who have that as their primary reason for making this change, isn't it easier for them to cheat? Um, Yeah, I mean... It is, um, there's only, actually, there's only one reason to be a consistent vegan and to consistently avoid an, all animal products, and that's because you believe that uh, it's wrong to eat animals and their products. So um, if you are doing it for the environment or for health, then um, basically, you, well, you can you can be healthy with just a little bit of meat and a little, and you can be sustainable with a little bit of um, of meat or animal products. So you don't have to do it for those reasons or not entirely. But um, I think that's all not so important. I mean, the important is that we create, we generate critical mass, and we generate a lot of people who are doing uh, some part of the impact or some part of the work. And altogether, they will have a big impact. Altogether, these people, these reducers, and, and they can be 50% reducers, they can be 75% reducers. Altogether, they have a big impact in changing supply and demand and then tipping the system. And I think that's the way we're going to get there. Not by a small number of strict vegans, but by a much, much bigger number of reducers and near vegetarians or vegetarians and near vegans, like a, a, a big group that is not... Um, that doesn't achieve our ideal, but because they are so big in numbers, they will have a bigger impact than the number of vegans has. Yes. Yes. Now, I have heard it argued that that's all fine and that's good and that's statistically valid and that we should let reducers and flexitarians and lacto-ovo vegetarians carry that message but it is the duty of vegans to carry the vegan message. What do you say to that? <laughs> I, I don't see it like that. I, I mean, if there is a duty, and I don't like to word duty very much, but uh, if there is any duty, then I would say, like, let's try to have the bi- biggest impact that we can. And um, if that, if a reducitarian message um, helps, and I think it does, and I think, uh, for instance, Brian Cateman is doing a wonderful job with that, um, then by all means, let's use that message. And of course, if you're a vegan and you don't feel comfortable with saying like reduce your meat consumption, then don't do it if you don't feel comfortable with that. But I would say to everybody, think about these things and read about them and study them rather than just accepting some some rule that says like, for instance, well, vegans can't do this or vegans can't do that. Question things and look at what is it, what is interesting, what is important, what is what is impactful. Read the research. Uh, don't just go by what other people tell you that you have to do. I think question things and keep an open mind. I think that's very important in this day, day and age, not just in veganism, but in society and life in general. 
Well, tell us, Tobias, just about your personal story. How did you come to this? Did you start out with more of an idealistic approach and, and you you learned things that caused you to see things the way you do today? Tell us your story. Yeah, so I, I founded an organization, a vegan organization, in uh, the year 2000. And um, we, uh, from the beginning, we said we want to reach uh, a large audience. And we want, um, not, we want to be there not just for the vegans, but we want to reach a large audience. And uh, so one of the things we did was to frame our organization as a vegetarian vegan organization rather than as an animal rights organization so that we could reach all, we could use all the arguments that were available. And this was one of the reasons, I think, I mean, appealing to all these reasons was one of the, one of the um, uh, reasons why we were able to get a structural government funding for this organization. This organization has been funded by the government, I mean, partly by the government, um, one third of the subsidy of the money. Uh, since 15 years in the meantime, it's a significant amount, and that's kind of unique. And so we, we learned from the beginning to be pragmatic and to see um, what works and what appeals to a wide number of people. And I think with many vegans and many people in ideological movements, uh, they lose sight of what it is to be like to be outside of that movement. And they they have no idea how other people see us or how they perceive our message. And I always say the most important skill for any activist, anybody who wants to improve the world, is to understand what it feels like to be in the other person's shoes, to know how they perceive, how they hear our message. And I think if you are, and, and that's my story is, is I was working for an organization that dealt with politicians and, and business people, etc. And if you are part of an organization, you almost automatically become more pragmatic because you have to deal with people and you have to like make alliances and partnerships. And these, these partners, these allies will not spread your, your message in the ideal way. And you have to accept that you have to make a certain compromise if you, if you want to make, to reach more people. And, and yes, I started as, as a more ideal, I mean, more, more strict person or more ideological person. I, I was a fan of Gary Francione for a while until I, I found that not a very effective approach. Um, so I, I changed, uh, but I have, um, I have made my own trip and I think I see a lot of vegans do that. I see a lot of people evolve from uh, being, um, let's say, rather ideological and idealistic uh, to becoming more pragmatic and to understanding that um, we have to, um, yeah, sometimes compromise, sometimes, and compromise sounds like an ugly word, but it's, it's not, it's compromise, it's not complicity. It is, um, it is something that we do to reach more people and to be more effective. Now, I think a lot of listeners are probably thinking, where is this country where the government is funding a vegetarian <laughs> vegan organization? I want to move there. So you're talking Belgium, correct? Yes, Belgium. It's, like, it's actually the Flemish government, the, the Flemish part of Belgium. How interesting. Well, one of the things listeners, um, this this is really a great read. I am so serious. If you are vegan, if you care about furthering veganism, even if you think, gosh, he said some stuff I don't agree with, just read the book anyway, because it is so thought-provoking. How to Create a Vegan World, a Pragmatic Approach from Lantern Books, wonderful, wonderful vegan publisher. And one of the great things, you have these sidebars, these wonderful little boxes really, really such thought-provoking topics. And one of them is motivated reasoning or why facts don't change our minds. That sounds counterintuitive. Why don't facts change our minds? 
Yeah, well, facts sometimes have the property to like make us more convinced of, of the opinion we previously had. I mean, counterfactual facts. Um, and, and actually what we see is that, um, in a lot of cases we use uh, our rationality and our reason not to find out the truth, but to back up a position that we intuitively are already held. So you can you can see it like this that um, our rationality or our, our ability to like um, find out stuff and find out facts and look at facts etc. It's not like a judge that impartially wants to find out the truth, but it's more like a lawyer defending a particular side, and that side is the is the side you already were on, the the, the idea you already had. So it is, um, it's, it's basically typically confirmation bias. So confirmation bias is the attitude that you will just go uh, look for the evidence and the facts that confirm your own opinion. I think we've all uh, experienced how we Google something and, uh, and then we see a, a page of results. And then in those results, we go um, for the result that just confirms our opinion. And we say, that's it. Here's the answer. <laughs> just it just says what we already were thinking. And and it's very hard to be open-minded. And that's why I emphasize open-mindedness and also slow what I call slow opinion uh, so much in the book. I think it's a, it's a very important quality in this day and age. So you quote Freud in a phrase, narcissism of small differences. And you say that we have some of that going on in the animal rights vegan world. Mm-hmm. What is that all about? So the narcissism of small differences is indeed a, a term co- coined by Freud. And it is about um, the fact that you see this a lot um, in um, in all kinds of movements, ideological movements especially. You see that there's often more hostility, we call it horizontal hostility, more hostility within the movement, among the different groups within the movement, than um, between people within and outside the movement. So, for instance, uh, you have um, the, the, the very uh, big fights uh, within um, or, or within the Muslim community with different um, kinds of Muslims. Uh, you have you have that with with many religions that internally they are divided, and the vegan movement also, to a large part, is um, is internally a bit divided in the sense that there's many different or. or let's say, rather, two different opinions. It's like the most, mostly the abolitionist part and then more, mostly the, the pragmatic, more effectiveness-driven part. And um, sometimes the, the, the discussions and the skirmishes between these two factions are more heated than the ones between, um, between uh, well, the vegetarians vegans and the outside world. And that's an interesting phenomenon. And, and Freud, I think, explains that in terms of a distinctiveness threat or identity threat. The thing is that um, uh, uh, other people or another group that is not like you exactly, but is very similar to you, is more of a threat to your identity than a group that is very far away from you. And um, I think that that can actually explain a lot. We feel a lot. We feel threatened by um, sometimes by people who are on our on our side, but they have a different opinion, and we see them sometimes as as traitors and we get really very angry. And I think the solution for that is, is what I'd call it a charitable attitude. And I see not enough of that. Charitable attitude means that we um, believe that everybody has the best intentions. And uh, I believe that of the abolitionists, I believe that they are, uh, even though I, I often don't agree with their um, 
uh, well, sometimes communication style, but also the theories, I believe that they have the best intentions of the animals at heart. And conversely, um, other people can, can believe that of me or not, but I think it's a very important attitude to depart from the belief in the right intentions. And that's, it's trust, basically, and it, it's on the basis of that trust that we can talk and communicate and work. If we had more of that, we'd be in another situation. You have some really, really interesting ways of, of looking at this thing, which are absolutely fascinating. For example, you have in your book a, a little cartoon, and we see a bullfighter, and we see a butcher, and you say, who is the general audience most angry with? And you tell us, and, and I think you're absolutely right, well, it, it's the bullfighter. He's just doing something for entertainment. It's terrible. Look at him out there killing this animal. But the butcher, certainly to somebody who consumes animal products, he's, he's doing a job and he's feeding people. Absolutely fascinating when we know the numbers that far more animals are, are killed and abused in, in the meat uh, industry than for entertainment is as bad as that is. You also have a chart where you, you talk about public support and you say that the forcefulness around, say, cat abuse or something like Cecil the lion, bullfights, killing whales, wearing fur, foie gras, and then we get to eating meat and it's way at the bottom of the list. Where did you come up with all this and what can we do with it in our own activism? Yeah, just to, to, to make it clear, so uh, this is about the relationship between how forceful you can be uh, in a certain on a certain topic. So I say that the more public support you have for something, the more forceful you can be. So if it's about Cecil the Lion, the whole world is with you and is against the dentist. <laughs> and so you can be quite uh, aggressive even in your outreach and nobody will, will blame it if it's about meat, it's totally different. So, yeah, these concepts, um, uh, uh, they come from a lot of reading and uh, and thinking. I, I like to think, basically. And um, I hope they're all useful. Um, the idea of the book is that it's very uh, practically useful. Uh, I mean, it does provide a theory, a strategy of um, how we could achieve a vegan world. But it also gives a lot of practical advice on uh, how to communicate, how to advocate, um, what to do with campaigns, uh, what works and what doesn't. So um, I, I do hope it is um, it is useful for um, actually any advocate, no matter whether, whether you're like a, a novice or, or really experienced and, and, and um, working in, a, in an organization for a long time. You also have a couple of terms I've never heard anywhere else. One is fashionable veganism and one is lighter veganism. And I think when one just hears these, they both sound like, oh, well, <laughs> that's just some kind of trendy thing. And yet, you think there's something good about these. Tell us about that. Um, so, while fashionable veganism, it's, it's not like necessarily a, a term or, or anything that I coined. But what I mean with that is that um, many people, many of the of the ethical vegans, are kind of like disappointed and angry when, um, or yeah, at least disappointed when um, when they see people calling themselves vegan, but they're not into it for the right reasons. Uh, they're not like ethical people, and and some do it for because it's fashionable, because it's healthy. Um, and they don't care uh, about the animals, it seems. And um, I think these people are very close to us. And this is where this horizontal hostility or the narcissism of small differences comes in also. Like, um, you know, sometimes there's really like a, a lot of anger towards these people. 
Uh, and I think they are very much on the way and they are very close to us. And um, I, I, I do believe that um, people in the end need to care about the animals, need to have empathy. But the, the thing is, this is one of the most important messages in my book, is that we don't necessarily need to lead with the animal rights argument. It's, it doesn't really matter what reason people start out with. And it will be so much easier um, to get to the animal rights concerns and to, to um, assimilate these attitudes and to believe that it's wrong to mistreat animals or to use animals once we are already not eating meat. So if you're not invested in a certain behavior, then, of course, it's a lot more uh, easy to, to, to judge that behavior. So that's, uh, that's the bullfighter and the butcher. Uh, we condemn a bullfighter very easily, as, as I mean, non-vegans condemn him very easily because they're not involved in bullfight, but they are involved in eating meat. So take away that dependence on eating meat, show people that it's good and tasty and healthy and, and, and uh, doable and affordable and that they can do it. And once they're trying it out, then they will be much more open to hear the animal rights arguments. And, and maybe in your experience, you know of people, um, and I've, I've met so many people who started out for health reasons. You know, you can sometimes encounter the, the, the most staunch activists and, and uh, people who give their life for it. And then you, you ask for this story and they tell that it started for health reasons. I think that's fascinating. And I think it happens a lot like that. So it, it doesn't matter what people start out with. I think many of them, not everybody, but many of them will grow to be open for uh, the ethical reasons. Fascinating. So one of your key concepts is you are not your audience. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Yeah, so that basically means, um, well, try to put yourself in other people's shoes. So if you um, want to sell a product, uh, you're not necessarily going to sell the product that you like, yes, uh, especially if you have a particular taste, uh, but you're going to like examine what people want and what people are ready for. And the idea of you are not your audience is that um, you are not the same people as the audience you want to reach. And of course, in a lot of ways, we are similar to other people, but in a lot of ways, we are not. And um, one example of that is uh, people who watch Earthlings and they go vegan, and then they think that everybody else should go vegan after watching Earthlings. But there may be so many differences between us and the other people. I mean, there's differences in education and in interests, and they can be relevant differences in the sense of like, maybe I have certain health problems and I have allergies, or I um, I don't know what, there's, there's many different possibilities uh, in which people can be can be different. And we have to take that into account. And that's also why, that's another important thing, is, is that we are adaptive in our approach and our advocacy. We don't say, um, I'm always going to talk about the animals because it is about the animals, but we look at what our audience is interested in. And for instance, if you were going to talk to politicians, they're usually much less interested in the animal rights topic than, for instance, in the health and in the environmental. So use that. I mean, why not use what you think will work most? So being adaptive to your audience, adapting yourself to your audience is, I think, a a very important, very strategic thing to do. Wow. My guest is Tobias Leonard. The book is How to Create a Vegan World. His website is veganstrategist.org. He's Vegan Strategist on Facebook. Now, you say on your webpage, the friendly and pragmatic part of our movement needs arguments for why this approach works. 
lest they not be accused of not being interested in veganizing the world and just sitting around sharing recipes and eating cupcakes. I try to provide these arguments. Hmm. So um, there's a friendly part of our movement that implies there's an unfriendly part of our movement. Well, um, yeah, maybe this is this is a bit of an old text. Uh, maybe I would rephrase that or reframe that a little bit today. It's it's. I mean, yeah, I do have. If I'm honest, I do have the experience that people who call themselves abolitionists, <laughs> unfortunately, I do have the experience that many of them are not very friendly. But um, uh, again, I I do believe that they act from the right intentions and from they have the best interest of the animals at heart. Uh, what I want to say with that, uh, with that piece is that, um, often the people who are, who look like they're, um, they're, they don't see things as black and white and they don't say that, that, um, uh, there's a good and, and bad, etc. cetera, uh, that those people sometimes are, are accused of like, of selling out and of not being, uh, not having the heart at the right place, etc. And, um, especially people who, um, uh, advocate reducitarianism or who say like we should ask people to reduce these people sometimes then they are they are really considered to be like traitors and etc and, and so i want to give a theory um why advocating for reduction also leads to a vegan world and um it's very important that when when you see advocates not saying veganism is the moral baseline or whatever, um, that they can still be just as interested as you are in creating a vegan world. They just have a different strategy and a different communication style. And we have to accept that. We have to accept these differences. And I'm not saying at all that the way I do things or the way I suggest things is the right way. And I, I wish that um, everybody would would um, consider that there's many ways to get to the top of the mountain and that there's not just one way. Oh, that's a beautiful, beautiful way to end. And I think when we look at liberation movements of the past, we really do see that it takes people coming from all different angles and all different points of view. I hope that we can all understand each other and uh, walk together for for a better and kinder world. And um, you're certainly doing that. I'm so happy to know you. I'm so happy that you're in this work together. How to Create a Vegan World. Read it. Thank you so much to both of our guests and to Unity Online Radio for being our gracious host and network. Next week. We're going to be talking with Ian McDonald about the history of vegetarianism and veganism. Where did we come from? It goes way back. That's going to be interesting. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net.
I'm Michelle Phillips, a celebrity makeup artist, beauty expert, self-confidence coach, and Hay House author. My podcast, Beauty and Beyond, is the place for women navigating the challenges of the aging process. Listen in for my professional advice, as well as my expert guests, as we share valuable tips, practical tools, and empowering resources to help you not only look amazing, but also live an amazing life part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and available wherever you get your podcasts.